There's a cliche in our culture we hear pretty often. I'll bet you've heard it even recently in some context. It goes like this. Three steps forward, two steps back. I think that's pretty appropriate when it comes to describing the Christian life sometimes. We make progress. We do okay for a while, but then almost inevitably we have some setbacks as well. You see, the Christian life is both gift and growth. Let me unpack what I mean by that. First of all, it's a gift. We are saved by grace through faith. We don't earn it. We could never deserve it. Even if we gave our best for a million years, we could never be good enough to earn heaven and earn God's forgiveness and grace. That's why it's so important we understand, all of us, no matter what our background, that Christianity is not about just trying to be a good person and hoping, hoping that I might be good enough for God to accept me. That is the biggest lie going. It begins as a gift, and that's why the good news is such good news. God's grace is amazing. It is a gift given freely by God. But the Christian life is also growth. When we receive that gift of forgiveness and eternal life, then we start cooperating with God's grace in our lives. He literally changes us from the inside out. And as we like to say here at Grace, we become more and more Christ-centered as we grow and mature in Him. Now, I think this truth was clearly demonstrated in the life of Abraham. In the message we had last week as we kicked off this series, we saw that Abraham is a daring pioneer of faith. He was willing to believe God's promise even though it seemed so impossible because he and Sarah were beyond the childbearing years and yet God had said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. But Abraham was so filled with faith that he was willing to leave his home, Ur of the Chaldees, and go on this journey even though he didn't know where he was going. But in the section we look at today in Genesis chapter 12, and by the way, if you have a Bible of your own, it would be a good time if you haven't already to open it right there to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start in just a minute in verse 10 as we pick up right where we left off kind of last week. What we see is that he experienced a relapse of faith. This great pioneer of faith became a cowardly prototype of doubt. He took three steps forward, but then he took two steps back. Let's examine his story, and then let's apply some of the lessons that we find here to our own lives when our faith falters. Once Abraham had settled in this land that God had promised to him, this promised land, the land of Canaan, okay, that's what it was called, the land of Canaan, he experienced some difficulty. Verse 10 reads, now there was a famine in the land. Now, once again, we're reminded that a person of faith is not without difficulty. 
Nowhere does the Bible say if you'll just follow God, if you'll just believe him, he will keep you from all troubles. You'll be healthy all your life. You'll be wealthy all your life. All your children will grow up to be perfect. They'll be academic all-Americans. No. Not only does Scripture never say that, in fact, it promises something quite different. Jesus himself said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He said, each day has enough trouble of its own. So, Scripture could not be any clearer. Faith does not exempt us from struggle. The Dunlap family certainly found that to be true this week. I'm sure that most of you have heard that Terry and Sherry Dunlap, who've been a part of this Grace family for many years now. Terry, uh, you see on one of our platforms, either at Latham or Half Moon or one of our campuses, just about every weekend playing bass on the worship team. So faithful, so loyal as followers of Christ. They have two wonderful children, Madison and Evan, ages 15 and 13 respectively. This past Thursday afternoon, Madison was walking the family dog and was struck by a car going at a pretty high speed. And she was unconscious, obviously severe injuries. She was revived through CPR at the scene as she had stopped breathing for a few minutes and uh, was taken to Albany Medical Center. It was such a moving sight Thursday evening to see so many neighbors, so many teammates, And parents, so many members of their church family gathered together just in the hallway and the waiting areas of that pediatric intensive care unit as we showed our compassion and our love and, and shared our prayers with this amazing family. Now, Madison still has a long road ahead and when she's finally stable enough to have the surgeries to mend a number of the broken bones, begin to set them and start her on a road toward more progress, uh, even then it's going to be a long, long road. So let's keep praying. Let's keep lifting Terry and Sherry and Evan and, of course, Madison to the Lord. And let's pray for everyone involved in this that God's grace would be lavished on their lives. But think about it. Here's a family who loves God. Here's a family who's serving God. And boy, they were not exempted from some of the worst that this life can dole out. Well, that's that's exactly what Abraham discovered. He was doing just what God told him to do. He had left his home. He had moved to Canaan. And yet he experienced this grievous famine. The rain didn't fall. The crops didn't grow. The sheep were getting thin. Now let me ask you a question. What do you do when the bottom falls out of your life like that? When God is silent, there's only one reasonable option. You keep hanging on to God. Because while God may be quiet, he has not given up on you. You keep hanging on to him. But Abraham here grows restless. 
And the next phrase of Scripture reads in verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine were, was severe. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God told him to go to Egypt. I think that Abram here was taking matters into his own hands. Maybe he wondered, am I mistaken about this call from God? Maybe he really didn't want me to come here in the first place. Maybe I was just confused. Because, boy, his blessing certain, certainly doesn't seem to be on us right now. And so everybody seems to be going down to Egypt. That's where the Nile River is. That's where all the water is. They're practicing irrigation techniques down there. They've got lush pasture land, plenty to eat. Everybody's going there. Let's go to Egypt. Now, in scriptural typology, Egypt is almost always a type of the world's evil system or worldliness or temptation. You say, a type? What, what is a type? What is typology? Listen, a type is an Old Testament person, place, or thing that foreshadows or points to or corresponds to a New Testament person, place, or thing. And Egypt is sort of a type of worldliness and a place of temptation. And so the world draws the Christian away, promising a better and an easier life. But when Abraham got to Egypt, he faced a serious dilemma. Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, now, just like Abraham's name changed from Abram to Abraham, Sarai, spelled at the end A-I, later is changed to Sarah, A-H. I'm probably just going to refer to her as Sarah throughout this message. But he says to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Now, almost every husband wants his wife to be beautiful, but many men discover that it's not always an advantage to have such a beautiful wife. They catch the eye of, of other men more often, and that often leads to jealousy or misunderstandings. But Sarah's beauty here is so outstanding, Abraham's life is literally in jeopardy because of that. On this Mother's Day weekend, I think we ought to remember that. This ought to be a source of encouragement to any older women out there. And by the way, every time I've asked, are there any older women, I, I never get any hands going up. I don't know why. But if there are any older women, remember, Sarah was 65 years old at this time. And yet, she must have been a classic beauty. She had aged very well to say Valise. Now, I've heard a number of men say through the years, you know, I've heard guys say, as I get older, I notice that the things that attract me or that I appreciate about uh, a woman, they, they kind of have changed through the years. For instance, if I go to a wedding, I've heard guys say, I, the, the mother of the bride looks more attractive than the bride. I mean, the bride is just a child, but the mother, she has poise and character and maturity. I think I understand that. I'm, 
I'm 56 years old now, and I feel so young, but, you know, I realized I was getting a little older sometime back when I watched a rerun of Leave it to Beaver, and June Cleaver actually impressed me with how attractive she was. I'd never noticed that before. Now, if I watch a rerun of the Beverly Hillbillies and Granny starts looking attractive, you'll know I'm in trouble at that point. But, but here's Abraham, and he could foresee what was going to happen. Somebody was going to want to move in on his wife. One of these government leaders was going to want to make her a part of his harem, and Abraham's life would be in jeopardy. Now, folks, any time a believer gets entangled deeply in the world, he or she is on a slippery slope. And that's what's happening here with Abraham. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, disobedience always brings complication. Has you found that to be true? Disobedience always brings complications. The Bible speaks of being entangled in sin. And what appeared here to be a temporary, simple solution, just going down to Egypt where there was plenty of pasture land, results in Abraham becoming entangled in Egypt and in Egypt's values. And life is about to take a really sad turn. So Abraham did what many would do in that circumstance. He practiced deception. Look at what he tells his wife to do in verse 13. He says, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. A few weeks ago, the front page of Time magazine had this feature front page article. Is truth dead, it asked. And the article uh, says what we all know to be true, that there's unprecedented dishonesty in our culture today. Corporations lie, business people lie, folks in government lie. One survey found that 63% of Americans have little or no confidence that government leaders talk straight and tell the truth. Nearly everyone, it says, given the right circumstances, is going to lie. Oh, sorry, officer, my speedometer must be broken. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I really love grits. It's just that I'm full right now. The check is in the mail. Right. Oh, no, pastor, we're not sleeping. We're just resting our eyes. That's all. One boy paraphrased scripture. A lie is an abomination to God but a very present help in time of trouble, right? And that's the way we feel about it. Well, Abraham resorted to lying, believe it or not, this great man of faith, to save his own skin. He said, look, Sarah, if the Egyptians begin to move in on you, show an interest, look, just kind of cooperate and tell them you're my sister and it'll be okay. Really? Abraham, what about Sarah? This man who in the New Testament is called a friend of God stooped to a cowardly lie and was willing to sacrifice his wife's virtue in the interest of self-preservation. Now, if that isn't enough, this next part may shock you even more. Temporarily, 
the deception seemed to be working quite well. Verse 15. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. Wow. Everything seemed to be going so well on the surface, but are you listening to me today? Material possessions are not a good thermometer for spiritual condition. Adversity does not mean that God is displeased with you. Prosperity does not mean that God is approving of you. The rich man Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12 was so fabulously prosperous, his barns couldn't even hold all the wealth, and yet Jesus said he's a fool. That's what he is. So be careful to closely align material prosperity with spiritual condition. It doesn't always tell the story. Abraham had to be experiencing distress here. There's an ad on TV that promotes a diet dessert, and here's what it says. Total indulgence, zero guilt. Total indulgence, zero guilt. Now, I doubt if there's any such dessert. But I know one thing, for the believer, there is no such sin. If you're a real believer, if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, the real deal, not faking it, not just a churchgoer, not just somebody doing your religious duty, you really get it, you're really born from above following Christ, listen, you will feel guilty when you disobey God. That's a good thing. Just like it's good that you feel pain when you touch a hot stove. You don't want to feel no pain, you'll burn your hand off. You want to have some pain when there's danger like that so that you jerk your hand back. You want to feel appropriate guilt when you're out of line with God. And I believe that Abraham felt that. His conscience had to bother him. Here he is separated from his wife. He had to be lonely, he had to be concerned about the welfare of Sarah. By the way... I find some comfort in this, can't prove it, but the book of Esther makes it clear that there was a period of waiting before becoming the wife of a ruler, and Pharaoh had not yet taken Sarah to be his wife. She was still in that period of preparation, of waiting, I believe. I don't think it had been consummated. But Abraham's conscience was certainly not so seared that he just enjoyed all this material prosperity without a bit of concern for his wife. And in verse 17, it reveals Abraham's deliverance. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife. We don't know how he put two and two together, but somehow he did. And now Abraham has been exposed as this hypocritical liar. How embarrassing. You know what I think? 
I think of years ago when President Richard Nixon was caught in the Watergate scandal. I believe if early in that process, early on in the process, he had looked the American people in the eye and said, you know what, I lied to you. I am so sorry. I was far more involved than I let you know. And then said, here are some of the details. I am so ashamed. Would you please forgive me? I believe he would have been able to continue as president. But it's so hard to do that because when you admit to lying, it shows such a character weakness. We don't want to do that. But Abraham's deception was exposed, and Pharaoh said in verse 19, why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? So then, here is your wife, take her and go. And verse 20 is actually a bit puzzling to me, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. That verse is surprising. I would expect it to read, and Pharaoh executed Abraham on the spot for being such a jerk. I would expect it to maybe read, and so Pharaoh sent Abraham away empty-handed, but he kept Sarah as his wife. But no, God had intervened here. This is nothing short of miraculous intervention, and both Abraham and Sarah had been protected, and they were sent away untouched and unharmed. Divine intervention of God prevented the fiasco and turned tragedy into a sort of triumph. Now, today there's just one lesson that I believe we ought to take away from this incredible story of a relapse of faith where Abraham's faith falters. And I, I want to give it to you in the form of kind of a little rhyme. I hope you can remember this. I hope you'll remember it, in fact, and maybe tuck it away in your mind and never forget it. Here it is. A person of faith will be tempted. A person of faith will fall. A person of faith can recover. It's better never to have fallen at all. Now, for just a few minutes, I want to take those statements and unpack them quickly one by one so we know what it means and we can take it with us as a lesson. First of all, a person of faith will be tempted. When the pressure was on, Abraham was tempted to lie. Sometimes I actually meet Christ followers who believe if I just have a strong enough faith, I will no longer be tempted. I'll be above it. Don't count on it. In fact, I would suggest to you that there will be seasons, at least, throughout your entire life, no matter how much you grow, no, how, no matter how Christ-centered you become, there will be seasons and moments when Egypt looks logical. Egypt looks advantageous. Egypt may even look wise to you. Jesus himself was tempted Certainly all throughout his life and ministry from the wilderness experience right down to the Garden of Gethsemane when Satan came against him. 
Having a strong faith is not going to take away the appeal of Egypt. Let me ask you, have you ever been strongly tempted to lie or to lust or to just have a sour attitude? Every great woman or man of faith I've ever known has always had to battle that ongoing battle of temptation. And I doubt if any of us is going to be exempt. A person of faith will be tempted. Second, a person of faith will fall. Let's keep it real here. We always do. Abraham wasn't just tempted to lie. Guess what? He lied. You see... I stress that because I believe that sometimes we look at a Christian that has a relapse like this that falters, and we go, ah, they're just a phony baloney. Ah, they never were real. It it just didn't mean anything to them, apparently. They They were just faking it all along. Don't be so fast. Don't be so fast. I believe if Abraham were alive today and we saw him pull a stunt like this, I think we would dismiss him as a phony in a moment. We'd say he never could be a great man of faith. You parents who have precious little children, you know that when your little 10-month-old child is just ready to start taking his or her first steps, you you watch with eagerness, you wait with bated breath, You've got the cameras rolling. But you know one thing, don't you? When that child takes the first step or two, you know what's going to happen next, right? They're going to fall. And no parent of a 10-month-old child is going to say, oh, sorry, you fell. We can't have a child around here who falls. We're going to have to take you back tomorrow because we just can't have that. No. You know that any child learning to walk is going to fall. So you encourage them. You say, come on, get back up. Let's try again. And as they get stronger, they're going to fall less often. But if you've got a 12-year-old who's still falling every two steps, well, there's a serious problem there. And the same is true in the Christian life. We're born again into God's family, and we're spiritual infants. We're beginners, as we like to say at Grace. And that means we're just learning to walk. We're not Christ-centered yet. We're not really mature yet. We're going to have some times when we take three steps forward and two steps back. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But as we mature, we ought to be falling less often. We may not be sinless, but we ought to sin less than we did way back there. I think I'm speaking to some people today, and you've been taking two steps back. I think I'm talking to some people today, and even though your conscience is bothering you and you know better, you're, you're engaged in sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to, and even though you know it's wrong, you, you do it anyway. I think I'm talking to someone today that even though you know it's wrong to lie, you deliberately choose to do it. Yeah, you're bothered. Your conscience is bothered. But you do it anyway. You lie, you cheat, you manipulate. Some of you are cheating or misappropriating money some way. 
You tell half-truths, which are really lies. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. A person of faith will be tempted. A person of faith will fall, but hear this. A person of faith can recover. Abraham was given another chance, and he made the most of it. That's what grace is about. He became the father of the faithful. Maybe I'm talking to someone today who's in Egypt right now. You became a Christian years ago, but you've had some serious setbacks. Boy, for a while there, you were really making progress, but then you hit a wall. In fact, you went backward. And maybe you've left in your life a swath of devastation, broken relationships, perhaps broken marriage vows, unpaid bills, disillusioned friends, tax evasion, family in disarray. Hey, the story of Abraham ought to be good news to all of us. It ought to be so encouraging today. The Lord is calling us back home. Listen to what Abraham did to recover. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. The first thing he did was to leave Egypt. He left the... He left the temptation. He left this land of sin, as it were, behind. That's the first thing we need to do. Leave the sin behind. The old country preachers used to say, if you don't intend on going in the house, then stay off the front porch. Repent of the sin, turn away from it. And then we read in chapter 13, verse 3, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place where between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. He went back to the point where he had first gotten deep with God and worshiped God when he first came to Canaan. You know the road home? Scripture makes it clear. Listen to this passage, Revelation chapter two. Yet I hold this against you, God says, you've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Catch these words. Repent, that means turn around, and do the things you did at first. That's the solution. Go back to the basics. Get involved in your small group again. Start having that quiet time again that used to be so precious to you when you really met with God on a regular basis, and it was just glorious. Start digging into the scripture again. Rebuild your prayer life. Start having some healthy fellowship with healthy people of faith. Come to church, sing the songs, engage in worship. Get your life going in the right relationship, in the right direction again. And scripture says, he will bury our sins in the deepest sea and remember them no more. Praise be to God. And you know what you'll find when you do that? you may find that God is so amazing, he actually uses that negative experience to make you more teachable, to make you more pliable, to make you more humble and more sensitive to other people. A person of faith will be tempted. A person of faith will fall. A person of faith can recover, but here's what I want you to remember before we conclude today. It's better, never, 
to have fallen at all. (laughs) I'm a little concerned that in stressing the amazing grace of God, which is very real, and we must make clear, but I'm a little concerned that I'll leave the impression with someone who's not really listening closely and who's hearing what they want to hear, I'm a little concerned that I'm going to leave the impression with someone that sin is no big deal. Hey, dude, you sin and chill out, dude. God will forgive you. His job. That's not what you're hearing me say. Yes, God's grace is amazing, but listen, the experience of Abraham should teach us that sin always leaves a scar. Every sin can be forgiven of its eternal consequences, but we have to live with the earthly blemishes of that. Think about King David for a moment. He was forgiven of all of his sins, and when he wanted to build a temple, God said, no, you're a man of blood. You're not going to do it. I will allow your son Solomon to do it. Sin had left a scar in David's life. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, as we conclude, some of these awful consequences in Abraham's life that resulted from his sin. He certainly brought dishonor to the name of God. Nowhere do we read in the Bible that, hey, when he left Egypt, he left a great witness behind. Oh, no. He left with a lot of possessions, but he left a lousy witness. We talk about representing the Lord well today. Listen, Abraham represented the Lord in a lousy way to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh never had a moment where he said, you know, I'll tell you what, that man, Abraham, boy, such integrity. Wow, he's such a shining paragon of virtue. I think I want what he has. I I think I want whatever God he's worshiping. That really gets my attention. No, no. In fact, when we read on in Genesis chapter 20, we discover a shocking thing. This blows my mind. Do you know what Abraham did when he went out to a place called Gerar and a king named Abimelech saw Abraham's wife? You know what he did? He said, she's my sister. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe it? He does it again. You see, once a sin is committed, it's easier to repeat it a second time and a third and a fourth. People say, I'm just going to do it once and, and then I'll repent. But the second lie is easier. The second snort of cocaine is easier than the first. The second sultry movie, the second secret rendezvous, and the third is easier than the second, and the fourth is easier than the third. We start this pattern that's hard to break. Sin is never easier to defeat than at its first meeting. That's why someone wrote, so a thought, reap a deed, so a deed, reap a habit. So a habit reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. But even worse to me is the impact that Abraham's sin had on his children. It affected his kids. Do you remember that mysterious phrase in the Old Testament? It's repeated like four times. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Remember that reading that sometime? 
Well, I don't think that means that God's going to come down and zap your great-grandkids for something you did. No, no. But what it does mean is that our children have, have a way of emulating and even exaggerating our sinful bent. Abraham lied about his wife and listened to what his son Isaac did in Genesis 26. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. So this is years later. Another famine has come. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Verse 7 reads, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. Now, where did Isaac get such an idea? His dad? He said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Isaac wasn't even born when Abraham did that. Oh, but he had heard the legend. He had heard the legend around the campfires as it was repeated. Moms and dads, do I have your attention? Be very careful about boasting about your past escapades because there are eager ears listening, ready to emulate your character, both good and bad. Be careful about what kind of legacy you're leaving. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob who lied to his father in order to steal his brother Esau's birthright. And then Jacob had 10 sons who lied to their father about the well-being of the favored son, Joseph. They said he must have been killed by a wild animal when, in fact, they had sold him into slavery. And you see, the sin of the parent is being visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what I want to say to you in closing is that there's something better than coming back from Egypt. And that's never going there in the first place. Something better than a glorious pit to pinnacle testimony. And that's never having lived in the pit in the first place. I love this phrase from the little book of Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Listen, the gospel doesn't just rescue us after we fall. It has a preventive power to it. It can actually keep us from falling, as Jude says. A person of faith will be tempted. A person of faith will fall. A person of faith can recover. It's better never to have fallen at all. God, I thank you for how real the Bible is. Thank you that you didn't gloss over all the foibles, all the mistakes, all the sinfulness of the people in your book. That really encourages us. That if you worked in their lives in spite of all their flaws, wow, there might actually be hope for us. Thank you, Lord, that even when faith falters, you still have a plan, and you haven't given up on us. Oh, God, help us to have a daring kind of faith and to follow you and trust you even when times seem desperate. In Jesus' name, amen.